Amen, and happy Easter. It is good to gather together. It's good to take time to open up the Word of God on this Easter morning, to remember why it is that we celebrate. And so I'm thankful to each of you for taking time out of your day to be here this morning, to focus our hearts and our minds upon Christ. And we've gathered here for many different reasons this morning. Some people come out on Easter because it's the Christian thing to do. Some people come because it's tradition or because a loved one asked you to come and you're trying to appease them. Or maybe you're here because you're hopeful this morning. Maybe you find yourself hopeful that perhaps there's more to Easter than bunnies and candy. Maybe there's more to life than what you've experienced, and you're hopeful that maybe you'll hear something today that will point you in that direction. And it's my hope and my prayer that as we talk about the resurrection, that you will see that there is a hope that is far greater than any other hope There is a meaning that is far more meaningful than any other meaning here on this earth and is in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Before we jump in, though, would you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the testimony that it is to these historical events that occurred so long ago. And yet, these events that each and every year we take time to remember to slow our lives down and to center ourselves upon the truths that are present in your word. And so, Lord, I pray for each and every one here today whom you have brought here, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would give us open ears and soft hearts to hear what you have to say. And Lord, I pray that nothing that I say would get in the way of what you wish to declare here this morning. And may it be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I was thinking as I prepared my sermon this week a lot about words. You see, a lot of what I do has to do with words. I spend a lot of my time reading and writing and speaking and talking. Thankfully, I like to talk and I enjoy talking and always have. My parents told me as a young child that I talked their ears off. I have some of my own kids who love to talk and I think got that from me, and it's a joy. But words, you see, matter. In fact, I was recalling back when I was in junior high how someone's words influenced me and my life in a profound way. I remember it very clearly. I was on a winter retreat with the youth group at our church, and I was a rambunctious teenager who loved to be just a little bit on the wild side. Not so much that I'd get in trouble, but enough that I caused some chaos for my leaders. And one of my leaders, his name was Joel Punningham, pulled me aside one evening, and he sat me down, and he said, Jason, I see something in you that I want you to know. I see the ability for you to be a leader if you choose. You have skills of leadership, and I think you could choose to use those to lead your friends well or to lead your friends poorly. And I want to see you use those skills to lead well. And that was it. That was the end of our discussion. And yet those words, what he called out of me, that leadership capability, stuck with me. Those words were important in my life. There have been many important words throughout history and time, and maybe you've had someone give you some important words in your life. Or maybe you've experienced the opposite. Someone has used words to wound you or to hurt you. But words matter. In fact, I was looking up some of the most famous words ever uttered and want to just read you three that I think you will all find familiar. One comes from Neil Armstrong. That's one small step for a man and one giant leap for mankind. MLK said, I have a dream. And Thomas Jefferson, 
in writing the Declaration of Independence, said, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with inherent and inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You see, words have power. Words can change the world. And these words that I've shared with you, these quotes, have impacted lives and cities and nations and the world. You still hear echoes of these words ring true today. And yet, I would propose to you this morning that these words pale in comparison to the most important three words that were ever uttered. I would suggest that the most important three words that were ever spoken are found in the gospel accounts of Jesus' death and resurrection. And that these words, which are why we are here today, changed everything. These three words are, He has risen. You see, these three words, He has risen, without these words, without the resurrection, everything here would be for nothing. If He has risen wasn't uttered, we would not be gathered here today. If He is risen would have not been spoken, there would be no hope. There would be no forgiveness for our sins. There would be no defeat of death. And yet, with those three words ushered in an entire new life, an entire new meaning for us, ushered in the grace of God in each one of our lives. So this morning, I want to walk through Mark's account of Jesus' resurrection. And if you aren't familiar with Mark, Mark is one of the four Gospels that were given in Scripture At the beginning of the New Testament, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and these are four gospel accounts, and each of these accounts follow the life of Jesus on earth, his life and ministry, to give us an idea of what happened when he walked the earth. These are eyewitness accounts, are written from the perspective of those who were eyewitnesses, and they give us a clear picture of who Jesus was and is and how he impacted the world. Mark, the gospel we're going to be looking at today, was written by John Mark. And while he wasn't one of Jesus' disciples, he was believed to have been an assistant to Peter. So the gospel of Mark is actually believed to have been Peter's account of walking with Jesus. Peter transcribed this to Mark, who wrote it down, and we have the gospel of Mark. And there's countless people who attest to that this is what occurred, and that this is really the account of Peter written by his assistant John Mark. So we're going to be jumping into Mark chapter 16, reading through verses 1 through 8. And there's something kind of interesting about Mark, if you've ever looked at the gospel of Mark, is in most of our Bibles, after verse 8, you'll see some italics. And it talks about how we're not quite sure if the rest of the gospel of Mark is accurate, whether it belongs in Scripture. And part of that's because some of the earliest manuscripts we have don't have those following verses after verse 8. And so that's why we're going to stop today at verse 8. I think there's validity to why those other verses are in there. I think some of our old historical documents attest to the validity of those extra verses. But for the sake of the gospel account, for the sake of what Mark is doing, we're going to stop at verse 8 this morning. Because Mark does something unique in his gospel account that the others don't do. That Matthew and Luke and John, they handle the resurrection in a slightly different way. Where Mark kind of leaves us with a cliffhanger which will bring up a question of faith for us. And so we're going to jump into Mark chapter 16, starting in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. 
And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? So we're going to pause there. So here we have these three women who start our account today. We have Mary Magdalene, who if you look back in Mark's account, we see that this is the same Mary who is possessed by demons whom Jesus cast out. So she had one-on-one interaction with Jesus in that manner. And she was also present at his death and at his burial, as was Mary, the mother of James and Salome. These three ladies were present at different times in Jesus' life and ministry. Salome is believed to be the wife of Zebedee, the mother of the disciples James and John. She's the woman who, if you're familiar with the gospel account, goes to Jesus at one point and asks him, in the afterlife, can my son sit on your right and your left? And Jesus tells her that's not for him to decide. And then he launches in a teaching on the first shall be last. So these are the three women who are the characters in our story today. These three women who had been around Jesus during his life and ministry. These three women who were present as Jesus was hung upon the cross, as he breathed his last as his body was removed from the cross and as Joseph of Arimathea took the body and placed it in his tomb that he gave to Jesus. And they watched with their eyes as Jesus was placed in that tomb, dead. And so here we have them re-enter the story on the Sunday morning. You see, Jesus died on Friday afternoon, and with the Jewish Sabbath starting at sundown on Friday, Jesus' body was unable to be properly prepared for burial. And the Jewish culture, the Jewish religion, believed that you cannot work on the Sabbath. There was to be no work done from sundown on Saturday through the Sabbath. So they wouldn't have been able to prepare the body for burial. But first thing Sunday morning, when they're able to work again, we see them up at the very beginning of the day, ready to go and complete the tasks of preparing Jesus for burial. One commentator says that in a customary honorable burial, the body was washed, anointed with aromatic oil, wrapped in a cloth with aromatic spices, placed within the wrapping, and clothed. The aromatic spices and the ointments were a sign of respect and compensated for the odor of decomposition, and they kept the corpse fresh for some period of time. So these women, followers of Jesus who had heard him teach, who had heard him speak about his death and resurrection. As soon as they're able to on Sunday morning, they go and they gather the spices needed and they go to the tomb to prepare the body. Even though they were followers of Jesus, it's clear that they had not taken seriously his talk of rising from the dead. Perhaps they thought he was just speaking metaphorically. We're not sure. But they go with the full intent to the tomb that they will prepare his body for burial that they will anoint him with these spices, and that they will do what is expected to prepare the dead body. And when they go to the tomb, we see that they are wondering how they're going to roll away the stone. They knew where the tomb was because, as we saw in a previous chapter, they were there when Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus from Golgotha to the tomb and placed him there. But as they head to the tomb, they're wondering who will roll away the stone. And perhaps this has less to do with them being unprepared and more to do with the unwillingness of other disciples to come with them to help assist. And so these three women head out alone, hoping that they'll be able to figure out a way to get the stone removed from the entrance to the tomb. 
Picking up in verse 4, we see what the answer is to removing that stone. It says in verse 4, And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. So this large stone adds to the mystery of the account that Mark gives us because we're not sure in Mark's account how it is removed, how it is rolled back. We just know that when they arrive, it's no longer blocking the tomb. And we know that it was large enough that the three of them were concerned with how they would remove it themselves. And yet when they show up, it's missing from the front. It's no longer blocking their entrance. As they enter the tomb, perhaps they thought they would find someone else there preparing the body. Maybe they thought that Joseph of Arimathea or some of his servants would be there helping to prepare the body and complete that burial process. They were surprised by what they actually found as they entered in and found this man sitting in the tomb. And the way Mark describes this young man gives us the keys we need to know that Mark's not just describing any man. This is not just someone who was journeying along the road and saw an empty tomb and decided to wander in and sit there and hang out until other people arrived. But this is an angelic being. This is an angel of the Lord who has been sent to declare the good news. There's marks of the angelic being in how he is dressed, dressed in a white robe, which signifies that it is an angel. There's the elements of the response and the greeting that the angel gives to not be alarmed that we see in other angelic accountings, like when Mary meets with an angel of the Lord. That's a very common approach as an angel arrives to say, do not fear, do not be alarmed, because that is the common response. And the angel knows as well who it is they're seeking. The angel knows why they've come to the tomb. And tells them, don't be alarmed, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified. So the angel knows exactly who it is and why it is that these three women are here. He knows that they have seen Jesus die with their very own eyes. And that they have come to prepare the body. And yet, he is no longer dead. He has risen. He fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament. Jesus' own prophecies that he had told his followers that he would die, and on the third day he would rise again from the dead. And this statement that the angel uses here for he has risen, it's actually just one word in the Greek, ergathe, and it has this meaning to restore from the dead or damaged state, to heal or to raise to life. Jesus was dead. There are eyewitness accounts that saw it. The Romans confirmed it. The Romans were excellent at torture and killing people. There is no doubt that when they pulled Jesus off the cross, they would not have done so had he not been dead. In fact, so much of the Roman power and authority needed Jesus to be dead. And yet, they couldn't keep him down. They could not keep him in the grave. Even rolling a giant stone in front of the tomb could not stop Jesus from raising from the dead. Well, the angel continues to speak to the women in verse 7. He says, But go, tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. 
And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So the angel gives them an instruction. He tells them to go. That these women, the time has come for them no longer to observe, no longer to just look around this empty tomb. There's nothing left for them there. The tomb is empty. But they are to live in light of the resurrection now, and they are to go out and to tell others the good news. The angel tells them to start with Peter and the disciples. Many commentators think that Peter was singled out here because of his denial of Christ, as we saw earlier in the text, and because of his leadership. But one thing I love about this text that the angel says is he says there in verse 7 that Jesus is going before them to Galilee just as he told you, that they will see him in Galilee just as he told you. And this refers back to Mark chapter 14, verse 28, where Jesus said, But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Once again, Jesus is fulfilling his promises. He's making good on his words that he has told his disciples. And he has told them that he will meet them in Galilee. And now he intends to complete that action. In Galilee, they will actually see the physical Jesus. Not just a vision of Jesus, but a physically risen Jesus Christ in the body, in the flesh. And we see in verse 8, The response of these women is that they go out and flee from the tomb and they're seized by both trembling and astonishment. Trembling and astonishment. They have both of those elements as they've had this interaction. As Jesus, who they had expected to prepare for burial, is gone. As they've engaged and interacted with an angel, they have trembling and astonishment. And we do see in the other gospel accounts that there's silence when Mark tells us that they don't tell anyone, that that silence is temporary, that these women do what they're instructed to do in going and telling, because they do indeed go and tell the disciples the message of Jesus' resurrection. I love how Matthew puts it in his account in Matthew 28, 12, when he tells us that the women were afraid, yet filled with joy, and they ran to tell the disciples. You can't fault them for being afraid. If you went to help bury someone who you had seen die and they were no longer there, that would cause a little fear, much less the fact that they saw an angel who told them Jesus had risen and knew why they were there. And yet this is where Mark chooses to end the text here this morning with the fact that they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. So the women have been instructed to go and tell. They leave with this wonder and astonishment And at Mark's closing, he leaves us on a cliffhanger that they don't tell anyone. We aren't given what happens next if we end at verse 8. We aren't given how the message of Christ spreads, and yet we know it does because we sit here today as part of the church, the capital C church, that has spread all throughout the world because of the faithfulness of the disciples in the early church. We don't know if indeed Jesus appeared in Galilee according to Mark's gospel. We are left with a cliffhanger by Mark. And yet we are left with hope and with a choice of faith. This abrupt ending leaves the women and the disciples whom they've been asked to inform about what's transpired at the tomb in the same position that Mark leaves his readers in. With the announcement of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, with a call to faith, and renewed discipleship. 
See, the promise of Jesus to meet the disciples in Galilee is in turn a call to faith. And the good news today is that Jesus extends the same promise to each one of us. There you will see him, just as he told you. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he promises that you will see him. He promises that he will forgive your sins and that you will live eternally with him. And yet, just like Mark's cliffhanger, there's an element of faith that is required by us. A faith to trust Jesus' words are true. A faith to trust that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. A faith to trust the words that have been inspired and written down and carried throughout generation and generation for us to read here this morning. This is the best news we could receive. This is the best promise that we could ever have given to us. That if we place our faith in Jesus, he promises that he will meet us and not only meet us, but forgive us of our sins and redeem us to life eternal with him. Well, you may be wondering, that sounds great and all, but this resurrection, how does it apply to us today? What do we do with it? With these three important words that I've stated, I think are the most important words ever uttered. He is risen. How do they change our lives? What do they mean for us? I want to give you three ways this morning that I believe these three words change our lives. The first is that they lead to new life. And that's something that occurs right here and now. The fact that Jesus fulfilled his promise to defeat death opens up the door for our forgiveness of sins. Jesus has borne the weight of our sin upon him on the cross. And now in him alone, we have new life. The chance that a new life can make all the difference in the world. Just ask Leslie Lynch King Jr. Perhaps you've never heard that name, so let me tell you a little bit about Leslie Lynch King Jr. Leslie was born Monday, July 14th in 1913 in Omaha, Nebraska. Leslie's parents separated 16 days after his birth and were divorced the following December. His father was abusive and had a drinking problem. His mother took her baby and moved back to her parents' home in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where she later married a man named Gerald Ford, a paint salesman. Ford later adopted young Leslie and gave him his own name. Later in life, Leslie Lynch King became Gerald Ford, the 38th president of the United States of America. Born Leslie Lynch King by adoption, Gerald Ford entered a new family and was given a new name, He became part of a royal line of men, all because he was adopted into a new family with a new father. And we, when we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, we are given a new name. Written down in the Lamb's book of life in heaven, we are placed in a royal line of believers from the beginning who follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We have a new father. We have a new family. We have a new name and a new destiny for our eternity. We have new life in Jesus Christ as we are adopted by him through what he accomplished on the cross when we place our faith in him. This new life that we have in Jesus gives us a freedom from our past and leads to a new life today. That's the second thing is that this he is risen, this hope that we have in those words leads to freedom for our lives. 
He has risen changes our lives and leads us to freedom. As men and women, as children who are sinners, we are in need of saving, and yet we are unable to save ourselves. It doesn't matter how good you are, it doesn't matter how many good deeds you do or how moral you are, you cannot provide salvation for yourself. We need someone else to intercede on our behalf. And Jesus contributed his life in order that we may have freedom from our sin. Without Jesus, we never would have had freedom from our sin. In a similar manner, Elizabeth Keckley found herself captive and needing freedom too. You see, she was a slave in Missouri before the Civil War. And her greatest desire, her greatest hope, was that she would be able to purchase her freedom for herself and her son. And her owner even agreed to the fact that she could purchase her freedom if she could raise the $1,200 that he was requiring. Keckley had worked as a seamstress and came up with a plan to go to New York City and raise money there, but her owner feared that she would not return. So instead, some of her wealthy clients in St. Louis contributed the money that she needed, and Elizabeth Keckley paid the price for her freedom as well as her sons because of those contributions from others. She moved to Washington, D.C., where she even counted Mary Lincoln among her dressmaking clients. But without the help of someone else, without someone else interceding on her behalf, Keckley would never have been able to purchase her freedom. You see, all of us are enslaved to sin. Sin that leaves us no hope of ever gaining freedom. And yet in mercy and compassion, Jesus gave his life for us, purchasing our salvation by shedding his blood upon the cross. And we are now free, free from sin, that freedom doesn't mean that we get to do whatever we want, but it means that we are to live now how Jesus calls us to live. Jesus gives us freedom, raising from the dead, defeating death, leads us to freedom in him. And yet this freedom can only be experienced through faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if you place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, those three words, he is risen, will lead to eternity with him, to forever being with Jesus. D.L. Moody tells the story of a bright young girl of 15 years old who is suddenly cast upon a bed of suffering, completely paralyzed on one side of her body and nearly blind. She heard the family doctors tell her parents as they stood by her bedside, she has seen her best days, poor child. No doctor, she exclaimed, my best days are yet to come when I shall see the king in his beauty. You see, that is our hope too. If we follow Jesus Christ, then the resurrection is the greatest antidote for fear of death. Nothing else can take its place. Riches, genius, worldly pleasure, Pursuits, none of it can bring consolation in the dying hour. Nothing will bring consolation except for the hope we have in Jesus Christ. To live with the resurrection in mind changes how we view things, changes how we see our lives and the lives of those around us. Just look at the Apostle Paul and how he speaks of death when he states in Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I will tell you, this is not just the Apostle Paul who has this attitude. Those who follow Christ, who have a maturity in their faith, will have a similar attitude as well. I've talked with men and women in the church who have had the same view, 
If God heals me of this sickness or disease, then that's great. I get to live and continue to live for Christ. And yet, if I die, what a beautiful thing that will be because I will be in the presence of my Lord and Savior. What a joy to be able to live life with that attitude, to be able to look forward even to death, which so many people fear because we know that it is not the end. You see, far too often we view our time here on earth as being the extent of our lives. And yet these few short years that we have on earth pale in comparison to the eternity that lies before us, the eternity that we can spend with Jesus Christ in heaven because of the fact that he rose from the dead. And perhaps you find yourself sitting here thinking, that sounds great, but I've never accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I've never placed my faith in him as my Lord and Savior. I've heard about him. I've thought he's a good man, perhaps a great teacher. But now you're hearing that he is the Messiah and that he died for your sins. And if that's you and you want to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then I would encourage you to not let any time pass. But to today, as we close in prayer, to repeat the words with me that I'm going to give so that you can accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, so that you can experience this hope that the gospel gives us in Jesus' death and resurrection. This hope that is far greater than any hope that the world can offer you. A hope that lasts into eternity. Or perhaps you're sitting here as a follower of Christ. You've given your life to Jesus. He is your Lord and Savior. And you're wondering, what now? What next for me? I've accepted Jesus. I have the hope. Well, your task is to go and to tell like the women. Your task is to live out your days in light of Jesus as your Lord and Savior. To live with hopeful anticipation for that time when you will be with Jesus in eternity. And to go and to share the good news with everyone who will listen. To not keep that good news to yourself, but to follow the words that are given to the disciples to go and to tell and to make disciples of all nations. You see, it's far too great of news to keep to ourselves. It's far too great of news to just let it impact our lives and change our lives. That news should impact everything we do. We should be unable to keep it to ourselves because it is is such glorious news. So wherever you find yourself today, I pray that as you've heard of the hope of Jesus, that it will lead you to live in such a way that you live in light of Jesus' resurrection, of his defeat of death, of his defeat of sin, and the freedom that he offers you today. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for the gift that you have given us, for the ways in which you have sacrificed so that we may have life. What a glorious thing it is that you defeated death. And so this morning, as we sit in this room, as we worship you, Lord, I pray for those who may not know you. Lord, if there is any here today who want to accept you as their Lord and Savior, repeat after me. Jesus, I come before you, a sinner in need of your grace. I pray that you would forgive me of my sins and that you would come into my life as my Lord and my Savior. Lord, I pray for anyone who uttered that prayer today as their lives have now been changed. Lord, may they sense your presence in their lives. 
Lord, for those of us who do profess you as our Lord and Savior, may you give us the courage we need to live out our faith day in and day out. Lord, as we face more and more opposition from the world, as the culture turns further and further away from your truths, may we stand firm upon the truths of your word. And Lord, may we look to you as our strength and our encouragement. Lord, we praise you, we glorify you, we honor you for your defeat of death. What, what glorious news it is. Lord, we pray us all in your name. Amen.